Good evening to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. It's hard to believe tomorrow um, is Friday, but for some of you, it's already Friday, wherever you may live in the world. You know, I was uh, very pleased uh, to see just how many um, listeners um, I had from the uh, previous uh, podcast episode being the introduction to um, American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution by Harlow Giles Unger being the new series that we're in. And the only reason I just say that is because I know that all of you, wherever you may live, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere around the world, are in fact familiar with the Boston Tea Party. But what you probably had been told for years was that the events of... um, December 16th, 1773, were just um, an isolated set of events that just unfolded on, on one night alone where the, um, the men who uh, dressed up as Mohawk Indians uh, were so frustrated over the fact that Parliament was passing legis- had passed legislation left and right without the consent of the colonists, and tea being something that was a part of the uh, Townshend duties, including the recently... Um, the recent uh, enactment of the Tea Act in uh, May of that year, 1773, just led the um, people of uh, Boston to be so overwhelmed and frustrated that they decided that they were just going to um, seize the three uh, ships that were in uh, Boston's harbor and just dump all the tea chests into the water. Well, some of that is true. Yes, the events that we are eventually going to learn about that happened on December 16th, 1773 are in fact true. But we also have to remember, as I said from the previous podcast, that in order to better understand what happened on the night of December 16th, 1773, we have to dig into the past. In other words, we may have to go 20 or in some instances between 40 and 50 years to really get a better understanding of what happened in the past that led to that present moment. Because there usually has to be something in the past that sparks an event like what happened on December 16th, 1773 to epic proportion. So in this segment to American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution, we're gonna learn uh, about some important characters Um, that is, revolutionary characters. We're also going to find out um, the names of the ships that um, came into Boston Harbor on uh, the very end of 1773. We're also going to learn about um, a handful of other um, information uh, in terms of information from the past that um, is essential in understanding how the past and the present meet up. So let's fasten our seatbelts and get ready for another exciting um, ride into the past. And when we come out, we will have a better understanding of where we stand in the present moment. So our leadoff uh, question for this uh, podcast uh, segment to American Tempest is the following. How many ships had arrived into Boston's Griffin's Wharf? On November 29th, 1773, I may have given away the answer earlier, but let's just pretend you all didn't know earlier. And remember what a wharf is, folks? It's like a, um, 
it's a dock basically where ships come in to unload their uh, cargoes as well as um, as well as cargoes or cargo for that matter coming being loaded onto a ship awaiting departure from uh, from the greater uh, harbor. So how many ships had arrived into Boston's Griffin's Wharf on November 29th of 1773 with vast quantities of British East India Company tea, that is? Well, the answer is three. Do you know what's unique about these three vessels? Well, let me ask you all this. Were they built in America or were they built in England? Let's think about that. Were these three vessels built in America or England? The answer, believe it or not, folks, is America. And so, therefore, these three vessels were owned by Americans, being Britain's subjects. Well, isn't it fair to say that uh, Parliament's uh, subjects, or rather Britain's subjects, are industrious people who have, um, who have etched out a significant living in the New World? regardless of uh, trade or profession. I would say so. Now, does anybody want to take a guess at the names of the uh, ships that um, arrived into um, Griffin's Wharf on November 29th of 1773? I mean, they, they just weren't ships. I mean, they have names. Does anybody want to take a guess at what the three names are? Well, I'll tell you this much. They're not the Nina, the Pinta, or the Santa Maria. <laughs> of course, we all know those three ships were the ships that Christopher Columbus and his crew uh, came over to America in 1492 on. So we, we definitely can rule that out. And it certainly wasn't the Godspeed, the Susan Constant, and the Discovery being the three ships that came to uh, what we now know as Jamestown, Virginia in 1607. So the, the names of the uh, ships that come into uh, Griffin's, Boston's Griffin's Wharf are uh, the Beaver, the Eleanor, and the Dartmouth. All three have tea chests or chests of tea. Well, we'll, we'll learn more about the vessels in another uh, podcast uh, somewhere down the road. But now we've got to um, trace a little further back um, to get a better understanding of um, of why the characters we're going to be learning about here will be mentioned in in a multitude of other uh, podcast segments. So let's start out with um, let's start off with this question here: Who is governor of Massachusetts, or rather, I should say, who is the royal governor of Massachusetts prior to and during the time of the Tea Party movement? Does anybody uh, know the name of uh, Thomas Hutchinson? I would suspect most of you probably don't, but that's okay. But he is the uh, governor, uh, royal governor of Massachusetts uh, prior to and during the time of the Tea Party movement. I should also point out that uh, royal governor Thomas Hutchinson, he's been governor of Massachusetts for some time. So if he's been governor of the colony of Massachusetts for an extended period of time, that to me that would mean that he's been governor of the um, or what we now know as the Bay State, but we called it then as the Bay Colony, um, it's fair to say that he would have been governor for more than five years. So, and I say that because three years earlier, who was the royal governor of Massachusetts? 
Thomas Hutchinson and what happened three years earlier in uh, 1770. Does the uh, event of March 5th, 1770 ring a bell to you all? I would hope it would for those of you who were with me when I did my first uh, podcast um, uh, series being uh, Dan Abrams's John Adams Under Fire, the Boston Massacre Trials. So March 5th, 1770, folks, the Boston Massacre. So Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson was Massachusetts's governor in 1770 when the Boston Massacre happened, and he just so happened to be one of the three judges that presided over the Boston Massacre trials. Okay, now we're going to move on to uh, a question that will involve a prominent forefather of ours. What forefather was a staunch supporter behind resistance to tea being unloaded at Griffin's Wharf? Is it fair to say, though, that there, were, that there was more than one prominent forefather who would have been opposed to the unloading of tea at Griffin's Wharf? Absolutely, especially if you're in Massachusetts. Of course, when I think of prominent forefathers in Massachusetts, I think of Paul Revere. I think of Dr. Joseph Warren. Of course, I think of John Adams. I think of, you know, John Hancock, just to name a few. But um, does Samuel Adams' name ring a bell? Yes. John Adams' cousin. Samuel, though, is 13 years older than his cousin John. But yes, Samuel Adams had a big hand behind um, demonstrating defiance in in a lot of ways. But in this particular case, he demonstrated um, his share of defiance when it came to Parliament's attempts to collect taxes upon legislation, most notably from the Stamp, Townshend, and Tea Acts, without proper consent from the subjects below being the colonists, a.k.a. we could say the people. For Samuel Adams and other Tea Party members, they viewed the tea itself. They didn't hate the tea, but they viewed it more so as a symbol of one's property, okay? The tea has come into our territory, or it's come into our dock, rather, I should say. But there's a problem. It's one thing to receive a good or a a service from overseas. But what about a tax? Well, I mean, there has to be some kind of uh, duty, or, um, or what we call duty is another word for taxes. There has to be something. I mean, we don't have we don't have anything in the 18th century, folks, like free shipping, like we have in today's modern um, world with Amazon or any other um, outlet online where you can order stuff and you get free shipping. And hey, that's great. But there was no such thing as free shipping in the 18th century. What what uh, compensates for all the um, mileage from overseas? There has to be, you know, taxes. I mean, and it's probably not cheap either. So, yes, it's one thing to view the tea as a symbol of one's property, but for Samuel Adams and other Tea Party members, the tax on the tea alone devalued a man's right to enjoy his goods, or I should say the value of his goods. So it's one thing to um, reap the fruits of your labor. It's another thing to um, reward yourself for all the hard work you've done in ensuring that... um, 
that the crops that you um, planted um, will be harvested, for example. It's one thing to um, request a, a good that you can't find in, in America, but you can. But it's a, accessible overseas. In England, being the, that your only trading partner really is England, but it's one thing for England to bring that good over to you, but there's going to be tax. Well, for Samuel Adams, it's more than just questioning the tax alone. There has to be consent. Well, consent's important. I mean, when you consent to something, you are agreeing to the conditions before you. If you don't agree to the conditions before you, then you don't have to um, sign off on something. You, you can decline it and say that I'm not interested right now at this time. But for Samuel Adams, consent itself has to be mutual, like the equivalent of entering into a contract. Both parties have to come to a um, unanimous agreement. They have to come. If, if they don't see everything eye to eye, they still have to come to some form of um, agreement where each party walks away with something and that each party is on the same terms. And if there has to be some a revision, uh, made, then both parties must notify one another and, and do what's best to work out the uh, modifications so that they will still walk away on good terms knowing that consent uh, was given. So for Samuel Adams, consent is essential because it has to be mutual, like the equivalent, equivalent of entering into a contract. Without a mutual contract, consent itself is no longer valid. Is it fair to say that for Samuel Adams, being subjected to a tax is like forcing something against one's own will without hearing what they had to say to begin with? Perhaps so. Of course, in the eyes of the British, it could be fair to say that maybe people like Samuel Adams are some of those people that no matter what we do, he'll never be satisfied with anything. Well, let's, uh, let's journey on along and um, learn about some other key characters. Who is Peter Oliver? I don't know if any of you all have ever even heard of him, but that's okay. Well, I can tell you this much. Uh, let me ask you this. Do you think Peter Oliver is a member of the Tea Party, or is he a loyalist? He's a loyalist. So if someone's a loyalist at this time... Where are their loyalties, folks? Are their loyalties to um, to king and country, or are their loyalties to um, being that of an ardent patriot? Being a loyalist is one who is... Being a loyalist has to do with uh, showing your loyalties to king and country. England, folks. So for Peter Oliver, he is a loyalist. He is loyal to, the, to king and country... But from 1772 to 1775, he served as the Chief Justice of the Superior Court for Massachusetts Bay. So is it fair to say that he is in the um, legal profession? Yes. Prior to the 1770s, uh, Peter Oliver had served as a justice on other levels of the Massachusetts court system. So if Peter uh, Oliver is a loyalist... It's more than just having loyalties to king and country. If he is a loyalist, what is he going to firmly support? 
will he support the idea that colonists, being the colonists in colonial America, does he believe that the colonists ought to be taxed more in general? The answer is yes. Peter Oliver firmly supports the idea that colonists were to be taxed more in general. He would also go on to uh, support the idea of the colonists being taxed more so in a time of war. And when that time of war comes, most notably, it will be the French and Indian War. Why does Peter Oliver want uh, the colonists to be taxed um, more frequently? Is it because of revenue purposes for Parliament to have short and long term? It's possible. Maybe it's, that, in other words, it's not 100% definitive, but it could be 50-50. But is it fair to say that Peter Oliver knows something that maybe the colonists in New England don't know? Yes. Peter Oliver is aware, like many other uh, British customs officials and uh, members of Parliament and of the uh, inner circle of uh, King George III, well, I sh for King George III, uh, that Peter Oliver is aware of smuggling of goods that are considered illegal. One of them is Dutch tea. Could it also be that he is aware of uh, molasses being smuggled in illegally? Perhaps. So, for Peter Oliver, higher taxes means, in his eyes, uh, if the colonists are taxed at higher rates, then it will he will see that as a means of hopeful um, deterring of uh, of, of the prevention of uh, further smuggling of goods. It'll be interesting to see how long that um, philosophy can last. But did uh, Samuel Adams take his pleas behind taxation concerns directly to Chief Justice Peter Oliver? Yes. What did Chief Justice Peter Oliver do, folks? Did he, um, did he side in favor of Samuel Adams? I think that's a no-brainer right there, folks, but no, he did not, um, he did not uh, side um, with Samuel Adams. Matter of fact, uh, Peter, Justice Peter Oliver uh, dismissed Samuel Adams' grievances simply in part because in the eyes of Justice Peter Oliver, Samuel Adams' grievances appeared to have no validity. In other words, there was no real... Um, relevant significance behind uh, his claims. It's fair to say that Peter Oliver uh, has probably, for one, known Samuel Adams for some time, and two, he knows that Samuel Adams is one of those um, rebel rousers who likes to stir trouble and create uh, conflict from within the pot. Well, uh, we know that Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson, is it fair to say that, like Pete, Chief Ju like Justice Peter Oliver, uh, is Royal Governor Thomas Hutchinson uh, a loyalist too? Yes. And it turns out that they are related. They are both brother-in-laws. Well, just because you're related, it doesn't always mean that you have to have the same um, sense of loyalties. But in this case, it probably does pay to have loyalties on the same page. If not, then I don't know how these two men could peacefully coexist. Now, prior to 1763, when the French and Indian War ended, 
What court legal issue lied at stake in Massachusetts? Does anybody want to know, uh, for example, what um, legal issue lied at stake in Massachusetts around 1761? Well, the answer um, is the following, folks. It's um, writs of assistance. And it's still used in uh, today's, um, what do you call it, a legal system. Not just in uh, the United States, but in England as well. R Does anybody want to know what writs of assistance are? Well, a writ, spelled W-R-I-T, is another, uh, it's, it's short for uh, written. Okay? So a writ of assistance, it's a written order issued by a court requesting that a law enforcement officer, you know, a law enforcement officer doesn't always have to be a, like a police officer, but it, it could be a sheriff or um, a tax collector, perform specific tasks that are assigned to them by the judge based upon the written order issued by the judge himself. You have to remember, folks, in the, in the 18th century, there's no such thing as a, a female judge. We've got a ways to go before that happens. Writs of assistance, though, is nothing new by the time the 18th century arrives. However, writs of assistance themselves date back to the late 17th century when Parliament enacted a series of customs acts between 1660 and 1662 which enabled customs officials to better search for goods deemed as being smuggled aka illegal illegally uh, brought in so it's kind of easy to get this assumption folks that in the late 18th century all of a sudden you know our rights are being trampled on left and right like there's no tomorrow but what we forget is that there have been laws on the books that um, date back well before the time our forefathers were born that pertains to uh, Parliament's ability to enact legislation that gives customs officials the upper hand in trying to um, obtain uh, writs of assistance with regards to cracking down on goods deemed as being smuggled. Well, we've already uh, talked about Samuel Adams, and of course, you know, he will be mentioned in plenty of other uh, podcast series, or we call it episode segments down the road for American Tempest. But there's someone else's name um, who is a patriot, an ardent patriot. But it turns out that he's one of those um, men whom has been largely forgotten. I didn't really know much about him until I read this book. I had learned some other things about him from other um, documentaries, but when I read American Tempest, I really learned a lot about him. He is from Massachusetts. Matter of fact, he was from West Barnstable, Massachusetts. If any of you all know where Barnstable is, um, it's um, Barnstable's located in what we now know as Cape Cod. Matter of fact, Barnstable's not far from Hyannis, where the Kennedy compound is located. This fellow's name is James Otis Jr., and he was born in 1725. That makes him three years younger than Sam Adams. 
that makes him older than John Adams, makes him older than John Hancock and some other uh, well-to-do prominent forefathers. But James Otis Jr. is a rising young lawyer. He takes up a case where he represents a multitude of merchants whom have been accused of smuggling goods into America. So he is the one that's taking up the case involving um, what we would call the, um, this term isn't um, available at this time, at the time that James Otis Jr. is taking up the case, but we could say now whether or not it was constitutional or unconstitutional, not just so much for a writ of assistance to be issued, but more so the issue at stake being whether customs officials had the right to issue a warrant without any advanced probable cause for evidence of smuggled goods on a merchant's property. In other words, you know, if you're going to search someone's property, you have to have probable cause. You can't just uh, come up to someone's property and say, oh, I've got a search warrant here to go search your home. For James Otis Jr., there has to be uh, compelling evidence. There has to be compelling evidence that John Smith is doing something illegal. There has to be compelling evidence that he has um, violated the law, not just on one occasion, but perhaps on other occasions. There has to be probable cause to prove that John Smith is engaging in behavior that is not only detrimental to himself, but perhaps to the community, um, that he could be endangering other people who are involved in his scheme. So, yes, you could be doing something in your home, but if you don't have the probable cause to prove that whatever is going on on your own property is deemed detrimental, then how can a search in uh, what we now know today as search and seizure, uh, how if you don't have enough concrete evidence to prove that something that you think is illegal is taking place, if you don't have enough proof to back it up, then you really don't have the right to, to engage, be engaging in any kind of proper, of, uh, rather I should say you don't have the right to be engaging in any kind of search and seizure, um, what do you call it, mission um, attempts. So for James Otis Jr., it's fair to say that he uh, values one's right to um, private property, or not just private property, but your own personal property. And it might be fair to say that he values the fact that people's rights to their property need to be protected at all costs. However, Parliament sees this all sees all of this differently. Parliament, along with the Crown, never questioned a man's right to property, which James Otis Jr. believed had been violated as a result of the improper search and seizure practices by customs officials. So yes, we, we can say now that there have been some improper uh, search and seizure um, activities going on, I mean, um, as we lead up to this time uh, in a few short years before the French and Indian War ends. However, um, you know, Parliament, though, they've got their own set of rules. The Crown does, too, but they both go hand in hand. For Parliament and the Crown, 
they, they truly believe this, folks, that a man's right to property, a man's own right to his property could be taken if the goods themselves had been smuggled illegally without paying any import duties, that is, taxes on goods brought over to America from England. So remember, folks, import means the goods are coming in from another country. When you're exporting goods, you are shipping them out from your country to England. And in this case, remember, we, you know, trade off, okay, we, you know, the United States can export goods to England, or colonial America, rather, I should say. England can export goods to colonial America. So we're both colonial America and England are exchanging um, in this trading process through means of both importing and exporting. So, so yes, this is very unfortunate. Uh, it's a huge setback here, though, folks, that for um, James Otis Jr., he's lost this case. Um, and it's very disheartening knowing that, okay, a man's right to property has become now more in, um, endangered than ever before, all in the means of, of, uh, of the uh, mother country now allowing her customs officials to uh, search a person's home without any kind of pro sufficient probable cause. These are not pleasant times, folks. We're not even at war yet with England, but it's not pleasant. I mean, we're not at what I mean that we're not at war with England, meaning that we have not officially declared any kind of separation but even at the start of the 1760s, it's fair to say that that uh, England and her uh, subjects, while they might be fighting a war together against the French and the Indians, it doesn't mean that they are in complete uh, agreement 100% over everything. Well, in what year did Parliament first attempt to tax the colonists without their consent? It wasn't 1765, folks, with the Stamp Act. Was it in the year 1730? Was it 1733 or 1750? The answer is 1733. Parliament passed the Molasses Act. This resulted in a tax of six pence per gallon on imports of molasses from non-British colonies. And we'll find out about the non-British colonies here in a moment. But the um, act itself, the Molasses Act, rather, I should say, drew support from plantation owners in the British West Indies. Okay, here, we'll name a few countries here that make up the British West Indies. How about the Cayman, the Turks, and the Caicos Islands? To the Bahamas. Uh, Barbados is one of them as well. The Molasses Act um, was passed with the intent of regulating trade. How about, did you hear the folks regulating, meaning that you're uh, restricting? When you regulate, you try to uh, restrict, there's tighter restrictions. That could be for both, um, for, for good reasons and not so good reasons, but the British, or Parliament here, has passed this act with the intent of regulating trade by making British goods cheaper versus goods from the French West Indies, meaning like Guadalupe and St. Martin. Well, the Molasses Act had a negative impact on New Englanders for various reasons. 
But ironically, prior to 1733, there were no major restrictions on molasses production. Okay, well, if there were no major restrictions uh, prior to 1733, why, why restrictions now? But, but we'll find that out here in a moment. But um, molasses production alone, folks, you know, this was not just, there was a reason why molasses is being made. It's not made to put on your pancakes or on bread. Molasses was tied into making rum. Rum, folks. Uh, liquor. However, there were taxes on rum, but they were minor. They were in the form of local taxes from the state or the, you know, or rather the colony you lived in. So th that's okay. That's tolerable, even to the, um, to the locals who live there, especially in this case, Massachusetts. Why so? Because they, they consented. They agreed to it. But over time, England, or rather I should say Parliament, clapped down on the, clamped down on the smuggling of French molasses because of price differences. Mola the Molasses Act sought to, sought to um, force colonies like the New England region to purchase molasses from Britain. And if, you, and if they didn't purchase molasses from Britain, they would be forced to completely stop producing rum altogether on their own soil. That would um, put a lot of people's um, businesses out of work. So, rather than adhere to the new act, many chose to continue smuggling molasses in from the French West Indies. Can you blame these people? No. I know it doesn't sound right to, um, how do I say it, to uh, not be abiding by the laws, but at the same time, I could see how many in Massachusetts and elsewhere in New England feel violated because they never were given true proper consent behind this. In other words, maybe it's fair to say that many in New England object to this because they didn't send anyone from their own colony overseas to England to uh, speak out on their behalf. Were New Englanders engaged with the Dutch trade prior to Parliament's passage of the Molasses Act in 1733? Yes. By 1715, 18 years before the Molasses Act is passed, port cities like Boston were importing, that is, receiving roughly 100,000 gallons of molasses from the Dutch on a yearly basis. I tell you, the... Um, how do I call it? The, uh, the market's really booming here, even if they know it's illegal. Many American distillers feared that the Molasses Act would destroy their livelihood, their profession, to forcing merchants into bankruptcy. You know, you have to remember, we don't have any such thing in colonial America as Chapter 7, Chapter 11 bankruptcy. So yes, if your business uh, folds... I hate to say this, but you're, you're pretty much up a creek. Do you think Parliament's going to be looking after you? Probably not. Had Parliament interfered in American trade, or rather I should say profession? Yes, they did. They interfered with the uh, distillery profession. But it was also the first time where a tax 
had been approved to curtail a certain colonial industry's growth. You know, as I said earlier, there are a multitude of different uh, professions in colonial America. You know, um, like, for example, you know, there's the tobacco industry in, in the Carolinas. There's no tobacco up north, but it would be like uh, Parliament imposing a tax on uh, the production of uh, tobacco or rice or indigo in South Carolina without the consent of the South Carolinians. True or false, would Boston, Massachusetts, by the start of the 18th century, become America's most vital shipping center? The answer is true, folks. By 1700, Massachusetts shipyards were launching, listen to this, folks, 140 ships a year. Boston was within close proximity to the forests, which allowed New England shipbuilders access, not just Boston, but other uh, port cities in New England, like, say, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, but the close proximity to forests in general allowed many New England shipbuilders easy access, for example, to oak, which was used to build um, a ship's hull. If you had white pine trees, that led to uh, producing masts. You, you have to remember, folks, we don't have steel or aluminum uh, to be building ships with in the 18th century. What are we going to turn to? Wood. And we're not just talking ordinary wood, folks. You know, white pine trees for masts, oak for a hole. When you have this kind of abundance, anything's possible. The mid-18th century saw American shipyards as a whole contributing contribute to building more than 30% of all ships that sailed under the British flag. Folks, yes, Britain has uh, shipyards. Britain can build her ships, but she can't build them at the same pace that the New Englanders can. Is it fair to say that Parliament and the Crown are jealous of her subjects' successes? I would say so. And is it fair to say that maybe Parliament is gradually starting to become a crab in the barrel, meaning that Parliament cannot stand to see her subjects succeed, and by doing so, Parliament will interfere with, uh, with an industry's growth by approving taxes on their end, to ta which in turn will force the colonists to pay for um, taxes that will go towards other things that will benefit only um, the people 3,000 miles away being Britain, but it won't benefit the colonists 3,000 miles on the opposite side of the, um, of the ocean. So we can start to see, see now the early signs or um, the seeds of um, resistance or what we know now know is uh, that famous phrase of taxation without representation. Now, was the town of Boston an island prior to and around the time which the Tea Party incident took place? Yes, Boston as a town only had one way in and one way out from its small strip of land that became known as the Boston Neck. Did the Boston Neck, did the Boston Neck itself connect um, to a city or a town um, south of Boston? Yes, Roxbury. It turns out that um, 
Dr. Joseph Warren, the American Revolution's um, forgotten um, hero, was from Roxbury. So when you think of Roxbury, you can think of Dr. Joseph Warren. Did um, most Bostonian merchants face a particular shortage? What kind of shortage do you think they might have faced? Was it just a shortage on overall supplies of um, essential goods? It's possible, but I'll give you all a hint. There has to be something that we, that we need to have, and it's still essential today when making a purchase to get something that we need. How about cash? So, most, Boston, most Bostonian merchants have, are now facing a particular shortage in the form of cash, hard money. You know, very few people, if you're of well-to-do status, you will have uh, probably greater access to uh, hard currency in the form of uh, silver or, in some instances, gold. But, can, but does everybody have access to silver and gold? No. If you don't have access to silver and gold, how can you um, modify your current situation if you're um, struggling for uh, cash? Or if you just don't really have any cash at all, but what can you do instead? Does anybody know what bartering is? But you, in other words, you can. the majority of New Englanders engaged in business transactions through bartering. Um, bartering is the practice of exchanging goods or services for other items or services without using money. Okay? Let's say I need a pair of, um, of shoes. I don't have the money for it, but the shoemaker is going to give me a pair of shoes. I need to give the shoemaker something back in return. And that could mean um, a device that he would need um, to make shoes with. I could um, give that shoemaker um, a pair of mittens, especially if the weather turns cold. So in other words, you know, I need shoes to keep my feet warm. The shoemaker needs a, a pair of mittens to keep his hands warm. So the bottom line is we, we're both wearing something. It's just from... Um, One's needing to wear something to keep his hands warm. I'm needing to wear something to keep my feet warm. So that's a, a, a good 101 example of uh, where bartering could come into play. Merchants often accepted um, produce, uh, pelts to livestock as forms of currency. Whereas other New Englanders hunted, fished, or farmed as a means of supplying their income to survive. Well, you know, okay, you've got livestock to take to the market. It's one thing to take it to the market, but if you don't have any other way of uh, paying for it, paying for something, then I'll just, I'll give you the livestock. You know, people um, in, in the early years of uh, Jamestown, Virginia, I had read, or not so much read, but when I visited Jamestown one time, I learned that tobacco was often used as a means to pay off debts. So if you... Um, if you owed a creditor X amount of money in terms of pounds, you could easily erase your debt by giving the creditor X 
amount of pounds of tobacco that you uh, harvested, and once you uh, gave the creditor the the tobacco that made that was the equivalent of how much debt you owed, then your debts were pretty much forgiven. So in other words, you had erased whatever it was that was still outstanding. Did each of the 13 colonies have its own form of paper money? Yes. Merchants in each colony often paid each other with specie, a.k.a. gold or silver coins that were referred to as commodity money. Now let's get into some interesting stuff here. Uh, you know, if we thought bartering was interesting, and that is, um, let's talk of uh, some other um, scenarios here. If the commodity values on both ends of a trade were unequal, in other words, they didn't have the same value, what could one merchant provide to the other party? In other words, what could be done to modify the situation? One merchant could give the other party change. And I'm not talking spare change. How about change in the form of something that's non-perishable, like corn, rum, gunpowder, molasses. <laughs> molasses, you know, Parliament just enacted a uh, piece of legislation <laughs> to, um, that involves molasses. What commodity was responsible for many of Boston's um, merchants' riches? Well, let me ask you this. Um, up north in New England, what kind of hunting do you think could be done on the uh, waters of New England? How about whale hunting, folks? So, how about whale oil and what's known as whale bone, a.k.a. cartilage. This was uh, the most valuable of commodities th that um, helped lead to many of uh, Boston's um, prominent merchants become uh, perhaps a little bit more wealthier. Whale oil was used for illumination, lighting of lamps, to lubrication, whereas whale bone was used to make uh, cap stiffeners to buggy whips. What happened in 1740, which led to a spiral downfall impacting New England's economy? Would it have anything to do with a shortage of currency? Yes. A shortage of British currency alone left um, many, most notably the farmers, the craftsmen, and the shopkeepers, cash-strapped to where they were limited in buying supplies from the large merchant facilities. The currency shortage alone led to higher levels of bartering among farmers. So if you become that cash-strapped, your options are very limited, and you're going to have no other choice but to barter. Bartering does help out with in the short term. Long term, there's no guarantee. So we got to figure out here, how can this be resolved? Did Samuel Adams, Adams's father, own Boston's biggest brewery? Yes, Sam Adams Brewery. I'll have to tell you all more in another podcast about um, about uh, Sam Adams, Sam Adams Jr. That is, and um, why they still refer to it as Sam Adams Brewery.
However, there's a second part to this question. Did Sam Adams Sr. come up with a plan to assist farmers whom were cash-strapped? Yes, he did. He went about creating what was known as a land bank. A land bank is uh, what's known as an entity uh, set up by the government or a nonprofit group. But I think it's fair to say that Sam Adams uh, did this not so much out of uh, kindness, that is Sam Adams Sr., but it was more for uh, nonprofit purposes. So yes, uh, Sam Adams Sr. goes about uh, creating a land bank with the primary purpose of printing paper money and lending necessary amounts to farmers opposite of their land values, a.k.a. real estate. The land bank created by Samuel Adams Sr. began in 1740, seven years after Parliament passed the Molasses Act. And there was a lot of success, folks, behind this land bank. The success was so great to where farmers were getting the upper hand in the marketplace, meaning that merchants had to accept farmers, the farmers' paper money as payment of goods and services. So in other words, the merchants could not uh, question what the farmers were doing. Is it fair to say that the merchants, even though not everyone may have been of uh, first merchant tier status, you would, have, you would have had merchants that were second and third tier, but is it fair to say that the merchants are more prominent than the farmers? Yes. The merchants are usually the ones that are going to get first dibs. But with the land bank in play, the farmers, though, are getting the upper hand. But I know that it probably does not make a lot of merchants happy. So the next question is the following. Would the land bank, would land bank paper money go about offsetting the value of British currency? Yes. And it really, really irked prominent merchant banker families like the Olivers and the Hutchinsons to Royal Governor, Massachusetts Royal Governor Jonathan Belcher, whom all demanded that Parliament prohibit all forms of local currency in New England. Okay, now we've got another problem here, folks. Will this lead many of um, New England's farmers, most notably in Massachusetts, upset. Absolutely. And it's not going to just make them upset to where they're going to be fuming left and right. They're going to protest. And, they're going, and they go as far as threatening merchants whom refuse to accept land bank money. Well, despite the farmers' protests and, and their eventual dispersal from Boston... Because you have to remember, farmers were coming outside of Boston. Of course, when I think of outside of Boston, I think of Worcester, uh, which is you know now about 50 miles west of Boston. Although uh, the farmers' protests were quelled and they did disperse, Samuel Adams and other land bank members got voted onto the executive council. They got voted onto the executive council by the farmers and those who... Um, supported the, the land bank uh, from its start. However, their election was denied. In other words, their um, seats on the executive council were denied 
by Royal Governor Jonathan Belcher. And not only did Governor Belcher deny them the right, deny Samuel Adams and other land bank members the right to sit on the executive council, but Parliament itself decided to shut down the land bank entirely. Parliament shut down the land bank entirely without requesting any kind of consent from the colonists being um, the farmers of Massachusetts themselves. Well, the collapse of the land bank led to greater divisions between Boston's wealthier merchants and the rest of economic society, per all industries below being that of like the farmers, uh, for example. The Adams family was left scarred, deeply scarred, especially the generation after being Samuel Adams Jr. And at this time that the uh, land bank crisis or, or the, the land bank was in existence, Samuel Adams, Sam Adams Jr. Is at, is at Harvard. When you go to Harvard at this time, you, um, you are uh, ranked. You are ranked upon where your status is in society. At the time that the land bank incident um, fell apart, or the land bank system collapsed, Sam Adams Jr. was ranked fifth in his class. But because of his uh, father's uh, failed scheme, Sam Adams Jr. now got demoted to the lowest on the uh, class totem pole ranking. Now that he's at the bottom, sons of farmers whom attended Harvard ranked in the lower tier. So is it fair to say that sons of uh, well-to-do merchant families are, would be ranked up on the upper um, end of um, Harvard's ranking system? Yes. So the land bank, um, because of the... Uh, Fiasco. Now, the land bank debacle now more than ever has led Sam Adams Jr. to develop a deep hatred of British authority. You know, it's one thing to not like what Parliament has been doing in the in the form of enacting a piece of legislation that has uh, curtailed a particular industry's growth. Of course, Samuel Adams was 11 years old in 1733 when this um, uh, legislation, being the Molasses Act, got enacted. Um, but, you know, now all of a sudden Parliament has um, shut down the land bank and did so without the people's consent. This is an injustice for Samuel Adams, not just for himself, it's an injustice for his family, and it is an injustice that future generations will have to, um, have to deal with if nothing gets resolved about it. So for Sam Adams, it's not just so much his father, his father's fallout, it's his own, it's his own um, personal demotion that he did not ask for to happen because of something his father had done out of the goodness of his heart. Loyalties now, folks, are starting to take shape, well before the first shots are being fired around the world. So for Sam Adams, for Sam Adams Jr., folks, remember this, it was the land bank uh, debacle. 
that would begin that would lead to the that would be the first signs of his roots of hatred for all things British authority related. You know, one's hatred of something has to start from somewhere. And it was this incident that really, really ticked Samuel Adams off. If I had been in his shoes, I probably would have felt the same way too, knowing that, that for one, Parliament shut down a... Um, shut down something that was actually benefiting farmers, but doing so without their consent. Remember, folks, for Samuel Adams, consent has to be mutual. If consent isn't mutual, then how can any kind of contract exist? If there's no consent, then, then how can anything be relevant? How can anything be valid? How can there be any kind of validity to something? So we can also see the beginning origins of um, the right to um, consent, the right to um, have your personal property be protected. We're also now learning about where, about why, um, about why the why writs of assistance are essential, but why writs of assistance should not be violated when there is not enough probable cause to conduct a search on someone's property, and yet someone does it just for the heck of it. Well, we've covered a lot of ground tonight, and thank you uh, for all of you who have been ardent listeners. Continue to listen, continue to get the word out to those whom would like to uh, learn about subjects uh, such as this one. When I'm on the air again next with you all, we're going to learn um, more about um, American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution. But uh, we are going to be learning about... Um, uh, we're going to be learning um, about the uh, 1740s, and we're going to learn um, some more about other uh, figures who come into the play that um, who come into play that are of um, vital significance to the greater Boston community. Take care, and for and I hope to be back on the air again soon with all of you, and um, have a good rest of your day wherever you may live in the world. Take care for now, and stay safe. <laughs>